We take up the theme of the book of Romans once again, this book that is probably the most theological book in all of the New Testament. We see that there is a definite flow of thought as planned by the Apostle Paul and led by the Holy Spirit to speak, first of all, of the universal need of the gospel, the forgiving grace or justification the transforming grace of the gospel, those who are forgiven are wonderfully changed by the Holy Spirit, and then that international spread of the gospel of grace, and we are now in that more practical section, the life-changing relevance of the gospel. And here you see in Romans 12 that practical uh, element coming through Our Christian attitude towards God, my body is to be presented as a living sacrifice. My mind is to be transformed by the renewing of that mind by the help of the Spirit. Then our attitude to other Christians, our attitude to non-Christians, and on the list goes. We've been seeing from Romans 12 and verse 3 that pride is like bad breath. We can easily discern pride in others like we can easily discern bad breath in others, but it is harder for us to see it in ourselves, and therefore there is to be a self-conscious effort of rooting around in our spirits and seeing something of that pride and seeking to deal with it. To summarize this section, Paul makes appeal, as we read from Romans 12, that we engage by thinking on the mercies of God that he justified us through the merits of his Son, that he's transforming us by the Holy Spirit, that he's sending a gospel to the ends of the earth, and all of that is based on his electing love and mercy. Because of those mercies of God, we are to offer up that body, we are to see that mind transformed, And if we're going to have a mind that is transformed, first thing on the list is to deal with proud thoughts. Now, I want us to see that as Paul is arguing for humility in this section, once again, it's logically laid out. One line of thought follows on another. Because of the diversity of function in the body, because of the profound unity in the body, all of these are you. We're not to be uh, have this inflated view of our own self-importance. We're dependent on the rest of the body. And finally, fourthly, because of the loving service within the body. The proud person thinks in terms of what is in this for me. And the loving person thinks, what can I do to benefit those who are around me. Now, as we come to this section, Paul has intentionally abbreviated the way that he speaks. So, Linsky, on translating this, says, the love, not hypocritical. It's almost like a word game, an association. Think of agape love, and what's the key word? Well, don't be a hypocrite in it abhorring the wicked thing. 
glued to the good thing. As regards brother love, family affection towards each other, and as regards honor, lead each other in giving honor. And then I need you to see with me something behind uh, the English translation. And that is that we have three of the four Greek terms that exist, four Greek terms existed in ancient Greek. Three of those terms are found in these two verses. Let love, that is agape love, be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love, and here it's a combination of two Greek words of love, philos and storge, Love one another with brotherly affection, philos, and adelphos, brother. So we've got these three different words highlighted there with the yellow that appear here in these two verses. So we need to see their distinction. And oh, by the way, the actual form of this last compound of brotherly affection If I read it to you in the Greek, it comes out something like Philadelphia. So if you live in this region, you need to know about these verses. Leon Morris writing says, at this point, 12.9, Paul moves from the charismatic gifts, the functions exercised by individuals, to virtues he expects to see in all believers. Characteristically, Paul begins with love. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, he's just dealt with spiritual gifts, and then he says, let's focus on love. In Galatians 5 and verse 22, in his list of the fruit of the Spirit, he begins with love. In a similar strain, Paul passes here from gifts to the love that should characterize Christians. Perhaps we can say that what follows is little more than a spelling out of what love means. And so this morning from these verses, though every phrase does not have love in it, I hope you see that love dominates these two verses, verses 9 and 10. So we will see a principled love, a genuine love, a righteous love, an affectionate love, and a respectful love. And with that, I invite you to come uh, to our handout sheet to see a little bit of the roadmap working through this. If you don't have a copy of that, raise a pinky and the men will be glad to put that in your hand. Notice with me then Roman numeral one, a principled love. What is agape love? And very simply, there it is on your sheet in front of you. Agape love is desiring and doing the very best for another person in the name of Christ. Agape love is not about me. Agape love is looking out and others. And when I have an interaction, what can I do to benefit them? 
It's not an external thing that I am doing in order to get brownie points for me, but it is desiring the best for the other person and then doing the best for that person. And how do I know what is best for another person? Well, it's whatever plan you can come up with that you can grab the stamper that has the name of Christ on it and say, this is what I desire for you. This is what I'm doing for you. Boom, stamped with the name of Christ. He approves what I am doing in this process. Secondly, B, not only what is it, but what are the roots of agape love? What is the source Well, when we speak of agape love, well, I'm obviously talking in a different language. And I give you these highlights. For the Greeks had four words for love. Philos was their love of the friend. I like you. I enjoy being with you. Eros is a sensual attraction of lovers. Storge is speaking of a family type of love. It's the love that a mother has for a son or daughter. It's the love that that son or daughter has back to the mother or to the dad. And then agape. But interestingly, back years and years ago in ancient Greek history, they did not speak of agape in any significant way. It was a vague word for love. But the writers of the Old Testament in translating and the writers of the New Testament in writing the New Testament took this word of love that was kind of nondescript and vague and they pour biblical meaning in it. What are the roots of agape love? It appears not only in our New Testament, of course, written in Greek, but it also appears in the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated into Greek at 250 years before Jesus came on the scene. And when those Hebrew scholars, thinking of their Greek friends who couldn't function well in Hebrew, They took their Hebrew word ahav and over and over again translated it as agape, God's love for us and the love that God expects us to show back to him and to our fellow man began this process of claiming that Greek word agape and putting biblical content. When I say that they they didn't have a real strong emphasis on agape love. There is only one time that this noun, they used the verb, but not the noun. And in all of the existing Greek writings, they found this name of agape, the noun for love, they found it one time, and that on a statue. In the New Testament, there is no use of eros, the sensual love of the sensual attraction of lovers. In the New Testament, there is no use of storge except three times it appears in a compound word. And we'll, we'll see those. Romans 1 speaks of those who are heartless, those who have no storge. And then in Romans 12, it speaks of a brotherly and family-like affection 
that is found in the church. In the New Testament, philos is used many, many times speaking of brotherly love, but the key word in our Bible is agape love. Vague and nondescript among the ancient Greeks, but there has been a biblical definitive meaning poured into it. What is agape love? Desiring and doing the very best for another person in the name of Christ. What are its roots? Well, it existed back there, but God the Holy Spirit has kind of taken the concept of agape and pulled it into the scriptures and given it a definitive meaning. Thirdly, see, how does God engage in agape love? We need not turn there, but many of us will be familiar with Deuteronomy 7, where God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love, translated into the Greek as, set his agape on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. So you see, here is the beginning. God doesn't love people on the basis of how nice they are, how good they are. Because if God only loved those who are nice and those who are good, the list would be pretty short. In fact, it would be non-existent. There is no one who can merit God's love. Jeremiah 31 in verse 3, the Lord appeared to him from far away saying, I have loved you, translated in the Greek as agape. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that all sets the table for us to come to John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world. God so loved that sinful mass of humanity that he sent his own son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Fourth question, D, how are believers to engage in agape love? Well, we are to love God with a principled love. And Moses gave this in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And guess what? When they translated that into the Greek language, they said, you are to agape God. And then Jesus, Matthew 22, verse 37 building upon what Moses said. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It is a principled love. On days that I wake up and I don't necessarily feel particularly loving towards God, I need to urge myself that I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then further, how are believers to engage in agape love? We are to love everyone with a principled love. We go back and we look in Moses and we find Leviticus 19. Listen to these verses. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of it. Do you you see something of the wonderful psychology that is contained in that? 
There is a danger that some things are going to come up that are going to be a difficulty between you and your neighbor. But you can't just leave it. You need to speak frankly with your neighbor. You need to resolve the issue because we have a responsibility to love the neighbor, as verse 18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors yourself. I am the Lord. This is what you need to do. I am God that I am giving this to you, and if you're in danger of bearing a grudge, don't. That's Moses. Jesus takes that and repeats it in the gospel, Matthew 22, now verse 39. There is a first commandment of loving God. There's a second that is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember that story of the Good Samaritan? And the, the lawyer is wanting to justify himself. Well, well, well who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor that I have to love? And then Jesus goes through that whole story, and then he turns the question back on the lawyer and says, okay, who was the neighbor to the man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead? And the lawyer had to say, the one who showed mercy to him, the one who loved him. We are to mirror Something of God's agape love in our hearts. We are to look out on the sinful mass of humanity around us, and we are not to despise them, but rather we are to seek to build bridges with them and to them to do them good. And this may work in the direction of us inviting someone to a men's meeting or us inviting someone to a ladies' study or us inviting someone to come to Sunday school. Think of the tremendous good that was done by those neighbors that looked out and saw Mary Barker as a child. How about your daughter coming to Sunday school? How about your son, Frank, coming to Sunday school? And we know their testimony intimately. And it all began with Christians looking out and saying, how can I do the best thing for this little child, this neighbor kid? And that was the beginning of lifelong glorifying of God. We are to love believers with a principled love. There's a special relationship that we have for believers. We see that in verse 10. But here we're looking at agape love as a principled love. It's not based on my feeling. It's not based on the merits. It's not based on the fact that I like you. It's based on me saying, what is the best thing that I can do for you? And I'm going to desire the best thing, and then I'm going to put foot to my efforts and seek to honor God with a principled love. Number two, 
Roman numeral two, a genuine love. What key word does Paul use to describe the agape love in the first part of verse nine? The love, let it be genuine. Agape love is required here by Paul to be not hypocritical. You remember the hypocrites that Jesus spoke of? A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask on the Greek stage. And I might be a great big burly guy with a black beard, and I'm playing the part in my imaginary play of Goldilocks. And so I'll put a Goldilocks face on and project my voice and be Goldilocks. That is a hypocrite. That is someone who is pretending. And it's interesting if Paul is urging us to play this word game, agape love. The agape love. What's the key word that you want to have associated with that? And for the Apostle Paul, it is not hypocritical. It must be sincere. And in the realm of the church, where there is a high value that is placed on agape love, individuals can be tempted to do the right thing without desiring the right thing. And so Paul says, agape love, you know you got to have it, you know you got to engage in it, but make sure your heart is right. No stage playing. No putting on a mask as if you were desiring and doing the very best thing. Sincerity Make sure that you are doing it for the right reason. And biblical Christianity is constantly beating back selfish motives. You remember when Jesus said, he said to him who invited him to this meal, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back. Don't invite those people that when you have them into your home, they're going to have the good sense to ask you back to their home and they're going to have the provision to do it. If I ask that kind of person into my home, I am in danger of doing it for me. Don't. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Does that mean that if you have a house and you have an income, that I should never ask you into my home? No, that's not Jesus' point. But his point is, when you do something kind for someone else, it's not ultimately to be for the blessing that comes back on you. It is for them. It is a love that starts in desiring and then doing the very best for another person. Principled love, genuine love, Roman numeral three, a righteous love. 
abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I came across, not even in direct preparation for this phrase, but I came across this passage in Amos chapter 5. Seek me and live, God says. Seek the Lord and live. And then in Amos 5 verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have said. Now here it is, Amos 5 15. Hate evil and love good. You see what he's doing. If you want to have a relationship with the holy God, you need to expect that when he forgives you, he is going to give you a heart after his heart. A heart that will make you to hate the evil and to love the good, to be glued to the good as we have it here in Romans 12. And isn't it interesting? If we anticipate Romans chapter 13, where he's going to talk about love, and he's going to say that love is the fulfillment of the law, how are we to interact with one another? And then he starts giving the second table of the law. Love is a righteous love. Love looks out and says, I need to do the very best for this person, and I know that doing anything of sin is not going to help them. I need to look out on this person and see that this is someone that I am wanting to do the very best for them. And that means if they are in sin, I may need to address that because that is not going to do them Good. So first of all, A, hate what is evil. Abhor what is evil. The word here is a very strong word. True love involves a deep hatred for what is evil. Paul is saying that the person who's been justified, back chapter 3, 4, and 5, The person who is a true believer, has believed in Christ, been declared righteous, forgiven, then is transformed, Romans 6 through 8, is going to be, as flowing out of that regenerate heart, a hating of what is opposed to God. Secondly, B, be glued to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. With this hatred of evil is the positive. There's this being glued to God. The Christian's attachment to the good, it's not some casual thing. It's not an attachment that happened once and it lasted for, man, almost two weeks. No, abhorring evil, it's not perfection. But there is this characteristic bent to my life. When I do get inclined to evil, I cut that off with repentance and I get glued back again to that which is right. And friends, I want to recommend to you that in a time of temptation, it is very helpful to come to this very plain phrase. 
overwhelmingly in our lives, we know what is right and wrong. Now, occasionally there's a, there's a difficult issue, and oh, it's hard to really know. the Most times, what, 95% of the time? We know what is right, we know what is wrong, and we need to come to that besetting sin, whatever it is, and hear God speak to us by His Spirit, hate the evil, and be glued to the good. Whether your besetting sin is gossiping about others, whether it is an impatience that bubbles up into irritation and anger, whether it is the exaggeration of the truth, pride in your abilities, pride in your possessions, covetousness, that leads to a deep self-content, discontentment, or just plain selfishness. When we see something of our particular besetting sin rising up, go to Romans 12, verse 9, latter part, have it locked into your mind, hate what is evil, and be glued to that which is good. And with God's blessing, it will help us to deal with that temptation. And when we knowingly are choosing what we know to be evil, we are in a very dangerous spiritual situation. Listen to Paul speaking to Timothy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. The only temptation is not to be rich. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Temptation does not necessarily mean that sin is next. But when the temptation comes... We need to face it. We need to know what is right and be glued to it. We know what is wrong and seek to bring our hearts to hate it. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Roman numeral four, an affectionate love. Principled, genuine, righteous. Now, Roman numeral four, an affectionate love. We're looking at the first part of verse 10. And there are two compound words in the first part of verse 10. The first compound word that we meet in our English text is one of brotherly fondness plus family commitment. This is behind the words of love at the beginning of verse 10. Love one another. But it's actually love one another with a philos love and with a storge love. Well, you're confusing me. Well, let me try to make it clear. The first compound of love in our English text is this philos and this storge, a brotherly love. The brotherly love that says, I like you. I'm fond of you. You see, I can exercise 
something of an agape love that I don't necessarily have a personal attraction to that individual. In the same way that God so agaped the world that he looked on that sinful mass of humanity that he has, in a sense, nothing in common with. They have all rebelled against him. And God, when he shows his agape love, it's like God needs to close his nose to the stench of their sin and show kindness to them. Philos is different. You're my brother. You're my close friend. I like hanging out with you. You like the same stuff that I do. And Paul is not saying that this is wrong. Rather, he is saying that among the people of God, we should recognize that we are all children of God, and hopefully we like the same things, we're interested in the same things of God, and there is this shared life that we have together. You remember how Jesus denied or Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times after he said, oh, no, that'll never happen. And then there's that meeting of restoration. Jesus prepares the fish, and the guys are out there fishing. And in that repentance restoration meeting, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? Do you agapao me? Do you have a principal love for me. Peter won't say it. He says, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I have this like for you. I can't say that I got a love of principle because it's fresh in my mind how I denied you three times. But still, I have this brotherly affection for you. I want to be with you. I like you. The storge is the love of a committed family member. You've heard those stories, haven't you? Of how a young man maybe hadn't seen mom for years. Maybe we'll go back to D-Day, World War II, been gone for a long time. But who are those men interested in at their dying moments? Mama! What is that? It's this natural storge love. It's the kind of love that is in there in that woman of the world. She doesn't even have to be a Christian. And this woman of the world, she's got a son or a daughter, but they never call. It's like they basically ignore her. Does that woman hate them? No. She's got this natural love in her heart, and he's always my son, she's always my daughter, and I'm never going to turn my back on her. And Paul's coming along and he's saying, he pulls both of these words together and he puts them together. And Christians are not only to have a love of principle, but Christians are to have the brotherly love for one another where we say, I like you. 
I enjoy being with you. And we're also have, as sons and daughters, something of this family love. I'm committed to you. And I'm always going to be committed to you. In fact, this word storge, this family word of love, it's used in Romans 1, 31, the catalog of the list of all the really awful traits. In Romans 1, verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, heartless, heartless. This is the mom who looks at her own son and daughter and says, they're nothing to me anymore. This word for heartless, no storge, is the young man who's been out on the battlefield, he's been gone for years, and he spits on the memory of his mother. No, the, the, the heartless. Christians aren't to be like that. We're to have this family sense, and we are to like one another, and we are to have this commitment to one another. If you don't have a storge love, a love of your heart that goes out to your sons, your daughters, if you don't have a love that comes from your heart to your dad and your mom, then you're heartless. And if as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can look at the spiritual family, look on the children of God, and you don't like them, and you're not committed to them, there is something wrong with you. And you need to address it. There needs to be the agape love, the principled love. There needs to be the phyllis. I like you. I enjoy you. There needs to be the storge. I am committed to you no matter what comes up in life ahead. Secondly, B, the second compound word. Brotherly fondness, phyllis, and brother. Here again, philos love, or the brotherly fondness is here. And this makes what Judas did all the more heinous. The word for kiss, you remember Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek? The word for kiss is derived from philos. And Jesus speaks to him and says something to the effect of, friend, do what you're doing. Did Jesus really regard him as a friend? It shows that Judas was a deceitful liar. That he could walk up to Jesus pretending to be his friend and give him the expression of a friend, the kiss on the cheek. All the while, he said, I got my 30 pieces of silver and you're going to be dead. This philos love. But philos plus brother. If you don't get the brotherly affection that we're going to hear, Philadelphia, Philadelphos, Adelphos, brother. A brotherly fondness and a committed family love is commanded here in the beginning of verse 10. 
Not that it's in the imperative form, but in his literary style, it's the key word and what needs to come with it. If you don't like the people of God, Paul is commanding you and me to do something about it. You can't just say, I don't like my wife anymore. No, it is commanded that you have a principled love towards her. And if you don't feel like liking the people of God, you need to start doing something that's going to help you to like them. If there is a conflict that is there, then resolve the conflict. Principled, genuine, righteous, affectionate. Roman numeral five, respectful love. Pride is opposed to agape love. Pride is all about me. What can I get? Agape love is other-oriented. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Romans 12 and verse 3. Romans 12 and verse 9. Let agape love where you focus on others be genuine. It's found in Philippians 2. One of the leading passages on humility. But listen what else is in that context. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, A, pride is opposed to agape love. But notice with me, secondly, B, agape love will take the lead in honoring brothers and sisters. Now, I I know we've been going a while, just get this with me, though. In the latter part of verse 10, that last phrase, outdo one another in showing honor is our ESV translation. Those good translations of the New King James, New American Standard, NIV, all go with a slightly different translation. It's almost like they go to Philippians 2, giving preference to one another, and they take that sense of that verb and bring it here over into Romans 12 and verse 10. And that can't get you too far afield, but... The word here in Romans 12 and verse 10 never means give the preference. It means take the lead. And that ought to be its sense here. So we're playing our word game with the Apostle Paul. Honor. The honor. And the key word that he gives to it is take the lead. Take the lead not in getting honor, but take the lead in giving honor. And that seems to be precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is not telling the Romans to push for first place among themselves, but they are to take the lead in giving honor to others. Now remember, this love is not to be hypocritical. So it's not to be a pretend sort of thing of, oh, I think you're the best in the world. 
when you really think that they are about 797 millionth in the world. As Linsky says, it's not Paul considering that every weak and erring brother as better or superior to himself. No, but Paul is always bestowing all of the deserving honor of those around him. His assistance, he's going to take the lead in giving honor to them. And I think if we understand this passage, then we'll see what it's really saying. Love is other-oriented. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to communicate to you that I respect you, that I have a high regard. I mean, after all, we've got the same Heavenly Father. And God is going to bring those of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. And I'm just glad to be a part of the group. And I'm definitely glad that you're a part of the group if God wants you in the group. Take the lead in giving honor. And as we close this morning, look at C, consider the great privilege of being a child of God. Some of us in our life circumstances, things have just kind of worked out in the physical family that we are isolated. We're alone. Well, look at the wonderful blessing of being a part of a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we can have this agape love for one another and we can have this philos love for one another where I like you, where I enjoy your company, I share many of the same perspectives because we are influenced by our Heavenly Father. And I can even move into a realm where there is this level of spiritual family commitment. Storge. This is why we sang glorious things of you are spoken. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters. Would you be a son or daughter of God? I would have you to be one. I desire that you be a son or daughter of God. I want to do what I can to help you to become a son or daughter of God. And so I ask you to see your sin, and that should not be too hard to do. See your sin and see that with your sin, you are never going to merit heaven because God's standard is absolute perfection. You think of these glasses, the glass windows across it, it takes one crack and they're not perfect. One violation of God's law and you cannot be in this perfect heaven. How are you going to get there? See your sin and then engage in the great exchange. What's the great exchange? It's when you come to the cross with all of your sins, you give all of your sins and the guilt for them to Jesus, and he gives you all of his perfect righteousness back. What a deal. 
It's the gospel deal. That's what I would have for you. Oh, become a son or daughter of God this day. And though you may be lonely and isolated and lacking in this and that because of your circumstances, you can be a part of the spiritual family and know a level of intimacy and like and principled love. Something like perhaps you have never known before. Oh, may God grant that you will want it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the great truths of the gospel. Thank you for this double exchange that you make so plain in the New Testament. That we come to the cross, we leave there at the cross all of our sins, all of our guilt. And as we believe in your provision, Lord Jesus, you give to us all of your perfect righteousness. Thank you for your gospel kindness. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you will come and work in our lives and help us to have spiritual sense. We read, read at the beginning of our worship of the value of coming into the sanctuary, the value of coming and thinking your thoughts, the value of knowing the gospel of your Son. We pray that you would be pleased to work forgiveness and work faith and bring us into your everlasting family. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.